Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Dr. Arthur Ziegelbaum, who is an Emeritus Research Associate Professor at UNL. In today's show, Ziegelbaum talks about his decades of study in the fields of physics and engineering, including many years working with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, progressing from engineer to executive, and being involved with many space missions. Siegelbaum also shares a little of his family experiences during the Holocaust and how that human tragedy and lessons from the Jewish faith spark his own sense of social justice. I like saying, uh, help me God, I'm an atheist, but I'm a small a atheist and that is for me, the belief in God it wouldn't change my life, wouldn't make any difference. I think a lot of scientists feel that way too. I'm not against theism. I think people who find that that comforts them, provides something in their lives, that's, that's just wonderful. Dr. Arthur Art Ziegelbaum is an Emeritus Research Associate Professor from the University of Nebraska Lincoln School of Natural Resources. He holds a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of California at Los Angeles and a master's degree in electrical engineering computers from the University of Southern California. He spent nearly 30 years at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, progressing from engineer to executive, and was involved with many space missions. In 1998, Ziegelbaum joined the administrative faculty of UNL before retiring, as it were, to pursue a PhD in geography remote sensing. Achieving that, he joined the research faculty in December 2010 and retired again in 2018. Ziegelbaum served on several federal oversight boards and now sits on many civic and non-profit boards, including Nebraska Appleseed Center for Law in the Public Interest, South Street Temple, and the American Radio Relay League. Art Ziegelbaum, welcome to Lives. <laughs> Thank you. We were just saying off air that you're a, a man of many facets, and I'd love to talk about those. And we don't have to cover them in any particular order, but I do think a good place to start, despite the fact that it is somewhat tragic and traumatic, is with your family background. And your family background, uh, unfortunately, features experience with the Holocaust. I don't know how to say your grandfather's name. Would you help me with that? His name was Shmuel Arthur Ziegelboim. Thank you. Uh, would you share a little bit more about who he was and why he is the subject of both a documentary film and also a dramatic film, too? Well, let me say that this is quite timely. This evening starts Yom HaShoah, the um, cel not celebration, the marking and the remembrance of the Holocaust. So it's a, a timely time. My, my parents were Holocaust survivors. My uh, mother was... Uh, enslaved labor camp from when she was 16 to 19. My father fought in the underground against the Nazis. My grandfather was a leader of the so Jewish Socialist Party in Poland and a leader of the Socialist Party. He uh, became part of the Judenrat, which was the Nazi-established council for Jews. It was set up to help them uh, find people to go to the slave labor camps and concentration camps in a more efficient manner. Uh, my grandfather fought against the uh, uh, the establishment of the ghetto in Warsaw, and uh, got crosswise with the SS, and he was in fact taken out of the country. He was uh, friends arranged for him to get a visas to get out of the country. He did, traveling eventually to the United States, and he was here for several years. As a matter of fact, he gave talks around the country on what was going on in Poland. As a matter of fact, he gave a talk at Sioux Falls in uh, probably the 1940-41 some period like that. He was then asked to come to. London and be one of the two Jews in the Polish government in exile in London. And his job was to receive the reports from a spy, Jan Karski, and, and other intelligence information about what was going on with the Jews inside Poland. When the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which occurred 80 years ago, about now, 
he got a letter through Yankarski from the leaders of the uh, uprising saying, do something. The your handful of Jews remaining are going to be killed. Do anything to get the British, the American, and the Allies to do something to save the Jews. Well, he tried. He talked to the Americans. He talked to the British. Couldn't get any response. So on the night of May the 11th, um, 1943, he committed suicide, hoping that that would shock them into some action. Of course, it didn't. That was the tragedy of my grandfather. There have been many books, many uh, there have been plays, there have been movies. Uh, the latest one I talked about was came out about in October 2021 in uh, Poland. And as a matter of fact, I've been working with the new American distributor. We're going to try to have it premiere in Lincoln sometime around May the 11th. Uh, we'll see how that goes. His death by suicide was, as you say, an endeavor to call public attention and to catalyze public action about oh, the, right. the Holocaust and, mm -hmm. and that extermination of a, an entire people. And as you point out, history tells us that it, it fell on deaf ears. But you also mentioned your father, Joseph. Yes. Would you perhaps just share a little bit about how uh, his life, as it were, began and how it turned out that you, his son, ended up in America? My father was a uh, mechanical engineering student. He had graduated from the uh, University of Warsaw. And as the war started, they were in the town of Lutsk in, in Poland and trying to get back to Warsaw, he and, he and his father, my grandfather. They were riding a bicycle, trying to navigate with all the other refugees, trying to move toward Warsaw, when a German fighter uh, strafed the line of refugees. Uh, they were separated. At that point, uh, my grandfather never found out that his son had survived. My uh, father found out his son had survived. I'm sorry, his, grand his father had survived because uh, when they were uh, taking over a small German headquarters in a, in a small town in Poland, he discovered a newspaper talking about the suicide of a Jew in London. That's how he found out his father was dead. After the war, my Dad and mom met by chance in the in the small town of Rockloff in uh, in Poland, and uh, fell in love, married. Uh, my mother, they came to the United States in 1940, December 46. My mother was seven months pregnant. She took to to the end of her life. She talked about what it was like going across the North Atlantic on a displaced persons boat in the middle of winter while you're seven months pregnant. But uh, they came to the United States. My dad uh, tried to do, um, tried to find some work in New York. He worked for a newspaper for a while, but really couldn't get anything going. So they were advised to go to California, and they came, moved to California. I was carried kicking and screaming across the United States when I was three months old, and uh, my dad got a job, eventually working for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at uh, at uh, in Pasadena, California, uh, several years before I started there. How did you get to learn about this? I, I can't imagine that as a child, the first thing you were told was all of this, but how did this emerge in, in your awareness? Well, as a matter of fact, they were fairly reticent when we were younger. They didn't talk about it. And it came out slowly. It came out in, uh, in, in strange ways, such as just like everybody else in my age back then, I had my cowboy boots and my cowboy belt and my holster and my cap gun. And if I fired my cap pistol too close to the house, my mother would start crying. Uh, it finally came out that it would remind her of what she went through. So we had to be careful. And then we heard more of the stories. We heard from relatives. And eventually we, I, I learned the, the full story. It was, it was hard to get used to and hard to appreciate when you grew up in America. You know, it's uh, relatively safe, no enemies. Uh, policemen were friends. Uh, so it was... Uh, and I learned more over time, of course. Uh, did a lot more studying about what my grandfather went through, what my parents went through. And you realize that, that so many things, I mean, we're not the only people to have gone through genocides. Uh, it, it happens a lot. And you start asking why. You also start worrying about anti-Semitism. Why are there people out there who hate me? I haven't done anything bad to them, I don't think. But for some reason, there are a lot of people who think I'm very bad. My friends think it's because of my puns, but other than that, uh, I don't know. But it's been it's been a learning experience, and especially later in life, I realized that uh, 
uh, with the years I have left, I, I need to do what I can to, to mark what occurred and do what I can to make sure it doesn't happen again. What was your childhood like then? No, oh, it was just a standard childhood. I, I was very much an introvert. I, uh, I would rather stay home and play with my electronics and my toys and stuff than do other things. As a matter of fact, I loved rainy days because my parents wouldn't bother me about, you've really got to go outside and play. But uh, no, it's just a standard childhood. I have to ask about the toys. What were the toys you recall from childhood? Oh, I was really getting into electronics, so I, I loved building things, I loved playing things. I would exasperate my dad because I would love to take apart things like clocks that he liked and figure out how they work, and they didn't work very well after I was done. I would, uh, I mean, there were stories, there were stories like when my dad, back in the days when he had one television, remember those days there was one black and white television, and he and I got in an argument one night about his program or my program. The next day, I modified the television. I put a little switch hidden under the molding in the wood. That when I threw that switch on his channel, the vertical hold wouldn't hold, so that it would flip. The picture would flip. So, next time we had the argument, it was kind of sorry that his channel didn't work, and I had to watch my program. And he was very upset. He was going to get call the technicians. I said, "No, I'll look at it. It, it got fixed." Has that mischief followed you throughout your life? Oh, of course. There might be some federal implications if I say too much. I'm teasing, but uh, yes, uh, I love playing jokes. I've also heard you say, though, that you had an early fear of being different. And I, I, well, I wonder what that means. Well, that's right. When, when my parents first came to this country, the, it was a new country, new people. Uh, obviously, they had a, this may surprise you, a fear of Christians, because they did suffer anti-Semitism in, in Poland. Uh, so. We had a Christmas tree. You know, the Jews normally don't celebrate Christmas. Um, uh, matter of fact, uh, what we've done is we compensate by beefing up Hanukkah from a minor holiday to something major in the United States. But uh, so we had a Christmas tree. And uh, one of my favorite stories about that is we were putting up this flocked Christmas tree, you know, the one with all the white stuff on it. And my dad heard something or saw something out the window, and it was my great aunt and uncle, his aunt and uncle. And he says, they can't see the tree. So we had this Keystone Cops thing of trying to get this flocked Christmas tree into a closet before they showed up. We never had a Christmas tree after that. What was the role and the practice of faith in your household when you were uh, Very little. My, uh, I, I think they had both abandoned the faith after my mother and father after the, after the war and what had gone on. And... Uh, my dad had always been uh, not religious. He was, his family was not religious. My mother had grown up in a family that, in surprising, was religious, neither as a result of the war because of the relationship of my father had, had kind of given it up. So we got minimal training on what it was to be Jewish, um, just the high points. I was going to say, as I got older, and especially with the kids, we got more interested. So uh, we were members of a temple in Southern California, so the kids get a little bit of training. Um, we never pushed religion. It's not been a high point of my life. I like saying, uh, so help me God, I'm an atheist, but I'm a small a atheist. And that is for, for me, the belief in God and it wouldn't change my life, wouldn't make any difference. So I, I don't. And, and I think a lot of scientists feel that way too. I, I'm, I'm not against theism. I think people who find that that comforts them, provides something in their lives, that's, that's just wonderful. But uh, we, we got involved with South Street Temple because, cause, you know, once a year, you, you've heard of, about the Easter Christians. Well, I'm a Yom Kippur Jew, and on Yom Kippur we go. That's a uh, very, very sacred holiday. It's a day when Jews atone for their sins against others. Um, the belief is that uh, the relationship between a Jew and other humans is much more important than the relationship between a Jew and God. So you, you, you ask for atonement for all the things you've done to hurt others. I got very involved. I was asked by a rabbi to join the board, um, and as you as you know, I tend to join. I tend to be, have a hard time saying no, so I joined the board, got involved because I think the community is important, and I want to support the community, and I do that. I, I go to temple almost every Friday, and not for the religion, but I set up their streaming service, so I run the cameras and the microphones and all that to, to help them out, and I think that's important. I think support of the community is very important. You've had a long career with science and engineering. What were the first inklings for you that 
the field of science, the field of uh, you know engineering things, was something that intrigued you? Well, I was fascinated with science always. I mean, uh, from from astronomy, I had a telescope. Was a from a young age. From chemistry, I had the chemistry set that after one disaster was banned from the house, so I did that in the backyard for a while. Now, I've always been fascinated with science, uh, and I got into electronics early, too. I, I, I loved to build things, got into radio. I got my amateur radio license when I was 14 in 1961, and, and I was always building stuff, and, uh, and, and the interest remained. And matter of fact, I started out in physics, and uh, when, when I was hired for the summer between my uh, junior and senior years at uh, uh, at UCLA, I was hired at JPL as an engineering technician, and I fell back on my amateur radio and electronics background. And uh, uh, ends up the physics was very important to have, but uh, I ended up building stuff and, and learned how to program. And I built equipment, learned how to program the equipment. Um, the uh, I tell young people, especially, that it's in, What's important is they get a lot of experience. You learn a lot of things because you never know how they'll come together. In my case, I spent 10 years testing Einstein's theory of general relativity as, uh, along with a scientist from uh, MIT. So, um, and having the physics background was very useful as I wandered through the electronics and planning, doing the mission planning and all that stuff. As a 14-year-old, tinkering and developing and building uh, radio relays and, and this sort of thing. D did that seem unusual at the time? Did, did you feel as if this was not something all of your friends were doing? Well, my friends tended to be people who would do that. I mean, we, I had a lot of friends and we had an amateur radio club in high school. We built a lot of equipment together. We played a lot of electronic jokes on each other. We, uh, we would uh, help out in uh, what's called the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service. We worked with the Sheriff's Department, so we were out doing uh, communications for events, and uh, we helped them out when there were fire dangers and things like that. So it was, uh, it was a pretty important part, part of my life back then. Did, did it then seem pretty clear to you that your pathway would take you into a field of academic study that would touch upon those particular subjects. So, so it was physics first, and, and then it was engineering. Well, I uh, I already had four patents, and I decided I'd never taken an engineering course. So I I went back to University of Southern California, which in those days had a microwave link to JPL, so I could attend classes several hundred feet from my office. So it was very easy. The um, the thing that I'm bothered by is I had four patents before I ever got an engineering degree, and once I got an engineering degree, I didn't get another patent. So I've often worried about that. Of course, I moved into management, and that tended to throttle things a bit. <laughs> what were patents in in a sort of layman's sense? What 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 have you invented? Oh, back in the early days, there there was no um, cathode ray. There there was no moving image capability for a computer. You couldn't project images. So I came up with a display system that would allow us to display images of. Uh, matter of fact, it was four Venus radar. So we bounce. You can't see the surface of Venus optically because of the clouds. So you bounce radio signals off Venus and you develop a map from that, from the characteristics of the return signal. When I, I got involved, it would take, they would take the data, they would process it, they would ship it down to the image processing laboratory. A week later, they would get an image back if something was wrong, they'd have to reprocess. Another week was lost. So I said, no, I, I can come up with a display system. So I did. So they would process the data and it would appear on the screen. So that was one of the patents. Another one was in a system that uh, measures distance to spacecraft for spacecraft navigation, and oddly enough, for relativity experiments. And there was a, uh, there was a joystick. I don't remember what the other one was. I'll think about it, but it was a long time ago. Have they been used, uh, uh, commercialized along the way? I don't know, because when you worked for NASA, actually, JPL was run by Caltech. It was a federally funded research and development center. But when you're we're doing work for, for NASA, NASA owns the patents. So they gave us some nice monetary awards, a certificate, patted us on the back, and then if anything came of that, it went into the federal coffers. I love how earlier you mentioned that your father was involved in um, the uh, American space program. And in some ways, perhaps this is hindsight bias. Looking back, it almost seems inevitable that you two would join NASA. But did it feel inevitable oh. that you'd be oh, with NASA? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I loved science fiction. I would follow everything that went on at JPL. 
I occasionally got to actually visit there when I was uh, in high school, and yeah, and I'd go to the Griffith Park Observatory and all that. So no, it, it was it was going to be part of my life. And, and so you talk about JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Right. Yes. Um, what is the work? And I'm sure it's changed. So what was the work that was being done there while you were there, and and what does it continue to do? Well, its prime responsibility was the uh, unmanned exploration of space, so anything moon and beyond. Uh, so they built the surveyors that were the first landers on the moon. They built uh, a Voyager, which you, everybody's heard of, that's gone, gone out of the solar system. They built the orbiters for the Viking project, which included the first Mars landers. That was a, The lander was actually built by Langley on the East Coast, but uh, uh, JPL gets credit for it because they basically ran the, the project. JPL could also do work that was of national importance for an agency other than NASA. Uh, even very classified work, the rule had to be that the title and the fact that we were doing it couldn't be classified, but the work could. My wife worked on a very highly secret project for the Air Force and the Army back then. Uh, matter of fact, that's how we met. She was loaned to me from, because I needed a uh, programmer and uh, project a software project manager to work on a Navy project we had with the Fleet Numerical Oceanographic Center in Monterey, California. But JPL mainly focuses on space, and you, you see that all with the the, uh, the Mars rovers that, that have become very well known. It was an exciting place to work. It was a wonderful place to work. Uh, I, I talk about the shiver moments. For example, uh, Mariner 73 went by Venus on its way to Mercury, and it, it flew by Venus got a lot of data, then flew by Mercury several times. I was out at the tracking station because my equipment was being used to navigate that spacecraft, and they said, you're going to be out, because it was a research development system, not their normal one, to get the accuracy they needed. And I was told I had to be at the tracking station in case something went wrong. So I was out at the tracking station, and all of a sudden we lost the signal from the spacecraft. And the reason was it had gone behind another planet. It was behind Venus. And I, all of a sudden, I started shivering because I realized, you know, Kepler, Copernicus, they would have given their right arms to be there at that moment. And here, somebody who's going to be forgotten in 50 years, I was part of this. Pretty amazing. Uh, another shiver moment, sitting at my console in, uh, in the Mission Control area for the Viking Project. And all of a sudden, there's the first picture ever from the surface of Mars, and it's right there, three inches from me. And, and realizing what an awesome honor it is to be there at that moment. I'm one of the first humans to ever see those rocks on the surface of Mars. How did that make you feel as a human? Amazed. I mean, you look at the technically what had to be accomplished and, and what it meant. Um, it meant a lot for human beings. I mean, all of a sudden we've discovered, another, exploring another world, something else that could add a lot of knowledge to human beings and, and the development of uh, technologies and, and science. It was uh, pretty awesome. What was the nature of the work you were doing? You were at NASA for quite a long time, and, and you've mentioned Einstein and, and, and some of these theories. So perhaps talk a little bit more about that. Well, the kind of work I did before I became a manager um, was I, I would, uh, we would have a need for a system that we could specify, and for example, the ranging system, which is a system that measures the distance of spacecraft by sending a signal up to the spacecraft, spacecraft cleans it up, sends it back, and we time the amount of time it takes for that transfer. And uh, so I would uh, help develop the hardware, and then typically I would write all the software that ran the equipment and then I'd be out there, we'd be experimenting with it, and during critical times, I'd have to be at the tracking station. We, uh, we used to joke that the worst thing you could see in the desert was a sunrise, because if you saw a sunrise in the desert, it meant you'd been up all night working on equipment and sweating over whether you could have it ready uh, in, in time for the, the uh, tracking. There were times, we had an exp experiment with uh, Voyager in order to get the um, navigational accuracy we needed to go by Saturn and onto Uranus and Neptune. Uh, the, the system I worked on uh, was upgraded and we had to make sure it worked and got the data we want. And we had to do that from Australia because of the particular, because of where Voyager was in the sky. And uh, before I went to Voyager, there were three weeks that I, uh, I would go home, I would have dinner, 
I would get about three hours sleep, I'd get up, I'd go back to work, and I'd work until the next night, have dinner, go to sleep for three hours, get up and do it again. Uh, matter of fact, I remember when we landed in Sydney, I uh, went to the hotel and slept for 14 hours without stop. Uh, it was, uh, if it, most jobs, they're, they're very critical things, but you know, you can't suddenly say, hey, hey God, hold Mars about there because I'm not ready, you know? You've got to be ready or you blow a hundred million dollars worth of experiment. So it it was incredibly hard on people and on their families. Lots of divorces, lots of medical problems, you know, it was, it was a, but it was very exciting and all of us felt it was worth it. I am wondering about the the impact on how you perceive the world immediately around you, the day to day, when you're so busy looking at the wonders of the stars and the solar system, and then perhaps you have to turn next to getting um, you know milk that is fresh and that sort of thing I mean how did how did you deal with that sort of juxtaposition I, I suppose people compartmentalize stuff you know and and you have day-to-day -day life everybody lives day-to-day -day life and, you know you I remember Chris and I met the director of JPL at a bookstore and he was hugging a book very closely and he didn't want to show it what it was here was a guy Ed Stone who was a professor at Caltech and the head of JPL and he was hugging this book uh, what have you got, Ed? Oh, he kind of hit it. We finally pried it away from it. It was uh, DOS for dummies, you know. This famous PhD has got, it's, you know, you, you led normal lives along with all this amazement. And you you weren't all one day, and the next day you're worried about the water pipes. Got a problem. I've got to get my wrench and fix it. it. It was an interesting juxtaposition. I think what affected me the most was people. People were so dedicated, worked so hard, and they'd work with you. I mean, we'd uh, people from all backgrounds, and whether they were uh, a PhD or whether they were a technician, were helping you pull some cables through uh, through a floor. Everybody's dedicated. Everybody's working toward this, and and you became friends, and you you commiserated with them with their sicknesses and their problems with their children, and and then you worked on uh, whatever technical issue you were dealing with. I mean. It's pretty amazing. So you mentioned being an engineer, creating, coding various elements of the program, but then also progressing through the ranks into sort of more executive positions. I'm just curious about why the progression and, and what did that entail? Well, JPL was worked hard, upper management, identifying people they wanted to have move into management. Yeah, it was surreptitious. I didn't know about it at the time. I was perfectly happy as an engineer. I loved what I was doing. I wanted to keep doing it. And I had no ambitions at all to go into management. And they invited me. They needed a representative from the uh, tracking systems, which I worked on, to a new flight project, which was uh, a f flight to a comet. And uh, uh, they asked me, would I mind taking that on? So. Meh, sounded different, so I took it on. So I started attending meetings and uh, working with people, and I had put together little teams to study things that we needed to, and I discovered that I kind of enjoyed uh, supervising and setting things up. I discovered that uh, uh, I could amplify my abilities by having others do things. Uh, for example, I, uh, although I had to take a lot of mathematics, I don't consider myself a great mathematician, but I had a great mathematician who worked for me. And he became an alter ego. You know, hey, uh, I, I need to do this math. I'm thinking about, oh, yeah, you can do that. It's a something, something, something. And he'd come back in a few minutes with, could we do this? And oh, absolutely. It was like having another part of my mind that was separated. So it amplified what I could do. And then uh, at one point they said, well, uh, you, you've done pretty well at this effort on this team. So we think if you're going to progress, you need to become a supervisor. So if there's an opportunity here, why don't you go look at it? So, okay. And I looked at it. Looked like fun. Became a lot of fun. I had 17 people working for me. I was working on uh, on the tracking systems, commanding systems at the tracking stations. And uh, I um, stayed involved with flight projects. Uh, I, I took part in, in science teams. And um, I, I started moving up section manager, uh, deputy division manager, and then uh, head of the program office. So it was important. It was fun to, to find the skills that allowed me to work with people and motivate them and listen to them. And yeah. Did you, do you 
want to go into space? Personally, at my age, it would be fun. There was a time when you couldn't keep me away. I was a very active pilot for, for many, many years. Now, probably not as strongly, but it's still of interest. Yeah. So such a long history with NASA, but then at some point you did want to step away and move back to academia, UNL, and then you were persuaded somehow to do a PhD. What was that journey? Well, there was, uh, look back and I kind of chuckle the, the paths and the way things come together just unexpectedly. I um, had become interested in people. There was a part of my life when I was a deputy division manager and I noticed one day that everybody above uh, group supervisor at the first level was white and male. And yet I knew they were very capable women, they are very capable uh, people of color. So I started investigating. And after doing a lot of studying of what was going on, I learned a couple of things. Uh, one was that it's not sufficient to change an organization to, uh, to handle people who are different, but also you have to change those people to learn how to work within an organization. So I got in, uh, kind of an inspiration one day and I decided to gather three other people and we created JPL's Minority Science and Engineering Initiatives Office and uh, managed to get a million dollars or so a year out of NASA and we put together quite a program. And it was incredibly re rewarding. Uh, I jokingly say that I missed my social consciousness period in the 60s, so I made up for it in the 80s. And it's part of the reason I later became part of Appleseed because I'm very concerned about people and the progression of people and the uh, uh, making sure that everybody has opportunity to achieve whatever they're capable of. And it, it, it's not only because it's a fair thing to do for them, but as a society, we ought to take advantage of the best minds that are out there, no matter what kind of skin covers that mind uh, or whatever ethnic background provided the, the DNA that produced that mind. And so that was a very important part to me. I was at a point at JPL where I had pretty much had most of the uh, management type positions. I had been involved in flight projects. I had uh, done a lot. And it was beginning to think it was time to do something a little different. One day I got a phone call from the director of the laboratory saying they've got this, uh, this senator from Nebraska. His name's Bob Carey. He's coming to JPL. He wants to talk about education. Really? And Ed Stone said, well, you're the guy, so you're going to talk to him. And because of, in setting up this um, minority science and engineering program, I'd done a lot of work with the universities, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and predominantly uh, minority-serving institutions. So I said, you're Ed. You're, you're, you're going to talk to him about education. Well, what do you want me to talk about? Well, we don't know. How shall I prepare? We have no idea. Just you're going to talk with Bob Carey. So I met Bob Carey at 6.30 in the morning in the director's conference room. And he said, you want a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah. And so we walked up together and he poured me a cup of coffee and poured himself one. And we started talking and we hit it off immediately. Well, he challenged uh, JPL to do a bit, NASA to do a better job using NASA data and technology in education. Okay. Well, I pulled together a tiger team, we called it. We came up with a project. We took it back to him and he loved it, got it funded and all of a sudden, uh, I was co-principal investigator for NASA and uh, a guy named Don Runquist at the University of Nebraska was co-principal investigator for, uh, for the university and we started this project, Consortium for the Application of Space Data to Education. I was coming back here to Lincoln about once a month. I fell in love with the place. And then I was introduced to a guy named uh, Rod Bates, who at the time was the uh, manager of NET. All of a sudden, there was this offer, a uh, joint appointment at NET, between the university and uh, NET, and uh, my wife and I talked about it, and well, as she says, we didn't want to retire in California. We want to try something new, and, and one of her good insights were the first move is going to be the hardest. The second one will be easier if we don't like it, so I accepted the offer. The funny side of it is I interviewed, I had 17 interviews in one day, every, up to the president of the university on down. It was one of those beautiful fall days, you know, the high 60s, and gorgeous. And I asked Bob Carey at dinner that night, is it always like this in Nebraska? And he says, oh, yeah, it's always like this in Nebraska. And uh, the, I drove out on January the 6th, uh, no, January the 9th, to take the job in uh, 19, uh, 1998. And I learned about freezing drizzle and, I, you know, getting off the Interstate 80 to scrape the windscreen uh, every, uh, I mean, uh, 
Uh, I teased him later about the bait and switch. I came to UNL to work on educational technology, so I changed careers from being uh, uh, worried about, uh, in the, uh, my last job at JPL was uh, data systems, so it was, uh, as a matter of fact, I had the responsibility for the data post-mission to make sure it was available to scientists. And I uh, moved to work in educational technology because that was my interest that Bob Carey had kind of sideswiped me into. Uh, and, and so I co-headed a research center at UNL on educational technology. In um, 2005, though, I, I was getting kind of tired of grant writing and working with sometimes, how can I put it, recalcitrant faculty. And I said, okay, I, we have enough money, I could retire. But what I decided what I, I wanted to do, and my wife kindly let me do that, was in 1976, I'd gotten my master's. And I passed the master's uh, comprehensive exam at the screening level for a PhD. And the University of Southern California invited me, the uh, engineering department invited me to stay on for a PhD, and I tried. Problem was, I had this toy on Mars I was playing with, and I had this dissertation I had to worry about. And there was this toy on Mars, and toy on Mars won, so I abandoned the program. So I retired in 2005 because that had bothered me for so many years not to have completed that. It's something I had always wanted and I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. So I retired in 2005 and called Don Ronquist, who is my co-PI on this uh, this uh, NASA project, and said, would you take me on as a graduate student? And he said, sure. And so I re-entered entered graduate school for the second time and worked on a PhD, which I got in uh, 2009. Fortunately or unfortunately, the uh, the work turned out, the research work turned out to be very productive looking at uh, stress, the remote sensing, the ability to look at the light from a plant, determine whether the plant was being was stressed, suffering from water stress or any other kind of stress. The research turned out to be valuable and productive, and so I volunteered to stay on and do research, and then I started for the fun of it, writing grants, applications, getting grants, and then uh, University asked me to do other stuff, and I finally said, look, uh, I can't do this volunteer. And so I became a, a member of the faculty. And uh, I did that till 2018 when I decided to retire the second time. Um, so I taught uh, ge uh, geospatial information technologies, so everything from map making through uh, this remote sensing. Got involved in a lot of research on uh, how to measure the characteristics of plants remotely. Uh, decided I would walk away from that. I was done. Great. And then one of my colleagues called me or sent me an email about six months or so that he had taken my research uh, that he had access to, had some new research he had done, and came up with a brand new result that's pretty exciting. So I'm working on a scientific paper with him. So hopefully, much as fun as it is, there's other things I want to be involved with. So. You mentioned earlier in our conversation how, as a child, you were really passionate about radio. One of the words that you've used a lot, other than toys, is people. And I have this sense that there is some connective tissue here. Before we explore that, what is the American Radio Relay League? The American Radio Relay League is the national organization for amateur radio, ham radio as it's known colloquially. And uh, it was started in, uh, in 1914 by Hiram Percy Maxim. Oddly enough, his father invented the machine gun, but that not connected. I was asked, uh, it was suggested I become the section manager for the state of Nebraska, the Nebraska section, many years ago. And so I decided, what the heck can I? I'd, I'd been president of radio clubs, things like that. So this was an additional thing. So I did a lot of work at that. And then. Um, the United States is divided up into 15 divisions, geographic divisions. This is the Midwest division that we're in. The uh, director of the Midwest division resigned. His vice director became director, and they asked me to become the vice director. Okay. And then I made a phone call to uh, the director and said, I decided I'm not going to run for vice director. I, I'm not again because uh, I'm just too busy. And he said, well, I've decided not to run for director. You're it. You've got to run. You know, you, we, they need, we need somebody who understands the board. So I did. And uh, now I'm the director for the Midwest Division. I'm one of 15 directors. 
and uh, it's been a very interesting time. It, it's an interesting hobby for a lot of reasons. Technology is one. I mean, a lot of things, when we talk about shortwave, shortwave was discovered by amateurs. Matter of fact, members of the American Radio Relay League back in the early 1900s. And uh, a lot of the technologies used now are, were first tested as part of amateur radio. Um, a lot of the equipment that's sitting behind me at this radio station came out of experiments that was done, were done by amateurs. And, so, and you mentioned people, it's wonderful knowing people around the world. I was uh, driving through Omaha on the way to uh, on a trip east and talking to an amateur in Japan and just talking pleasantries. I made friends literally around the world. Now, it's kind of hard to understand that the excitement, although it's still a lot of fun to do, but when I was a teenager, a phone call to Europe cost $100. There was no such thing as, as cell phones. And to have a radio in front of me that I suddenly could connect with somebody in Australia or New Zealand or, or China, or it was a pretty amazing. How do you think about, how do you frame your attitudes to what is right and what is wrong, what feels fair, this idea of how we live well as humans together as a society? Well, I've always had this galactic image, if you will, this, this universe that we're part of, and we're such small, insignificant specks within that concept. We're a species that we can, we build things together, we do very well. We're also a species that manages to kill a whole bunch of us off. You know, as I, as I pointed out during that, that birthday celebration, there, were, there have been 18 genocides since 1900, killing millions of people. Uh, Ukraine, uh, 1933 or 34, Seven million people were killed by starvation by Stalin. The Holocaust, of course, six million Jews, six million non-Jews, uh, homosexuals, people with mental problems were eliminated. Darfur, I mean, you go on and on and on with these things happening. And it, it just doesn't make sense. And this brings me into, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this because of the, my grandfather also, because of the movie coming out, I've, I've had several interviews and several events that have occurred to talk about my grandfather. One of the things that I, that I, I point out is um, my mother always taught us, just drummed it into us, that you never hate anybody else because they're part of a group. That doesn't make sense. Uh, whether it's an ethnicity or a race, you don't hate them. If they need to be hated because they're a bad person, hate them as a bad person, but never uh, never treat them differently because they're of a different color, different race. A small aside, I mean, we, we could talk for hours about this, but I, I've always been a good progressive, good liberal, I thought. And when I created this minority science and engineering program, I went to Jackson State. I spent three weeks doing nothing but traveling to historically black schools and uh, minority serving institutions. I was uh, at Jackson State, it's the first school I visited in Mississippi. And walking through the campus, and what came to mind was, what a beautiful campus. Look at the beautiful grounds. Look how well-dressed the students are. Look how well-equipped the laboratory is. It hadn't met my expectations. Here, a good liberal, I was just as biased as anybody else. To think about how deep that is and what the implications are, where did that bias come from? A second thing, that the second event, I, I say I've learned a lot from my kids. I have learned a lot from my kids. I, I assume any parent can say that. I dropped my son off at school one day. He, he was in the third grade. And he walked over to a, a black boy that happened to be there. And they did this mock tussling. Then they walked off to the playground arm in arm. You know, in science, we talk about the principle and the essence. The principle is what you observe and what you think may be happening. The essence is what actually was happening. And people have been very misled by thinking they understand what was going on. Well, I saw my son go off with his black kid and I thought, my God, what a wonderful parent I am. Think of that, think of that, think what I did. I created a young person who doesn't care that somebody's different. Isn't that wonderful? Didn't discriminate, didn't run away. They're friends. I am the epitome of parents. I learned how wrong I was. That was the principle. I learned the essence that afternoon. I drove up to pick up my son at school, and he was talking about his friend Bruce. And I said, oh, was that boy that you were, that you were playing with this morning? Oh, no, Dad, that was John. Bruce has blonde hair. John has black hair. 
The essence was there was no difference. He was just a boy. And you think about that, how, how we move an individual from that understanding to all of a sudden giving them a sense that they're different and we need to protect ourselves. That's colored a lot of my thinking about how we need to deal with people and being accepting of people. What have you learned about yourself over your experiences in life? Uh, about myself? That's a hard question. I, uh, there's parts of me I really like. I love my interest in exploring. I, I, I love the fact that I like to look at lots of technologies and lots of science. And I'm also very interested in lots of people. On the other hand, uh, I have, uh, how shall I put it, personality flaws having to do with, I'm very impatient. My wife will tell you that. A lot of that came from my parents. You know, th there are a couple of things that I realized come from, through the Holocaust. Uh, one is that my dad was very impatient. His growth had been impacted by having the war occur, as had my mother. I've, uh, so that's impacted me. The Part of it, too, I suppose, is that he was in a culture where the male was uh, the dominant person in command of the family. I guess the women in the family were allowing them to keep thinking that even though they were running things. The other thing that struck me the other day was uh, we have, we've gotten to an age now where we have friends who are passing on. Thanks to the Holocaust, I never had grandparents. I never had older people around me. You know, most, most kids get to experience death when they're fairly young and understand how to understand it, how to find closure. I never had that experience. So now it's particularly hard to, to try to understand they're gone and uh, to accept that. So. I'm a person that I think I would like in some occasions, and I think I thoroughly hate myself on others. I mean, I don't know <laughs> how else to put it. Well, let me close in. You've perhaps mentioned the biggest adventure of all, which is whatever happens at death, maybe nothing, maybe something. So other than that, what for you do you think is the next big adventure? Oh, it's the one I'm exploring now, which is uh, Chris and I have started this part of our life in philanthropy. So it's how to learn about people, how to support people. I've, um, and Ambassador Appleseed's become a big part of my life, trying to, to be fair. We've gotten involved with uh, certain political campaigns that we think need to be supported because it's, it brings the most freedom and fairness to people. This part of my life, I'm exploring what it is to be human and uh, trying to understand the things that have gone wrong and why they've gone wrong. Uh, I've been invited to give the uh, keynote address at the Nebraska State state holocaust commemorative on the 23rd uh, it was really a quite an honor and i've been thinking about how to say that and the uh, the important thing for me uh, although we talk about never forgetting it it's those things we need to remember and the things that are so important are that the holocaust didn't occur overnight I was realizing that. The Holocaust didn't occur just one day Hitler and his gang said, tomorrow we're going to set off and killing the Jews. It was implemented by a whole 10 years of messaging, of uh, changing laws, of changing government, of discrimination. And so I worry with a lot of the things we see going on in this country now, they are steps toward maybe not a Holocaust, but certainly a uh, loss of freedom for a lot of people. And we need to do everything we can to protect against that. And so I'm spending a significant amount of time worrying about that. This is an interesting place. Uh, you know, you ask what, what is different about the United States? And I may use this in my talk too, so if anybody comes to the talk and I say the same thing, forgive me. We are a people who are escapist. Think about it. If you're a Native American, you escape the horrible things that the United States did. Your descendants, who people who survived from horrible treatment, which included killing many, many, many Native Americans, the Trail of Tears, all, all the stories about that. If you're Irish, your family very likely came over during the potato famine. You were escaping starvation. If you're Jewish, you were escaping the pogroms in Europe, in Eastern Europe and Russia. If you're um, African, you survived your descendants of people who survived slavery and incredible numbers of deaths and incredible mistreatment. We're a whole culture of escapists, and that should give us a lot of empathy for each other because we all came here for better lives and to leave something that was 
terrible, whether it was starvation or political mistreatment or whatever. We should have a lot of sympathy for each other. And I'm afraid we're losing that. I've seen a lot of wonderful things in Nebraska that, that give me hope. The uh, South Street Temple was desecrated about, I think it was three years ago. A neo-Nazi carved anti-Semitic epithets in the uh, old doors on the, on the temple and drew a swastika on the uh, stairs in front of the, the synagogue. And that Friday, that was on a Tuesday, on Friday, South Street Temple was packed with Christians, Jews and Christians. And, and the Christians had organized a guard that stood people around the building to protect the building during the service. Why'd they do that? They did that because they so support freedom, the freedom of religion in this case, the freedom to, uh, to worship as you see fit. We had a fundraiser, uh, a GoFundMe for, um, I think it was $5,500 to repair the damage. We raised $22,500, most of it coming from outside the Jewish community. What does that tell you about these wonderful people out there? And then you look at the politics and wonder, how do you mesh the politics that could lead to a Holocaust with the incredible sensitivity that we saw in these people? It's something I want to explore and understand, but I think it's a, a time when we need to be very, very careful or we're, we're going to slip down this slippery slope that'll take us to where this country doesn't want to be. My guest today has been Dr. Arthur Ziegelbaum. Art, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing so much of your history, so much of your experiences, but also so much of your hope and optimism. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Yeah.